So what path should you take when you have to live with the consequences of your past sin? What path should you take when you have to live with the consequences of your past sin? As you look at the Bible, there are so many examples that we could speak of. You think about Adam and Eve, opening chapters of the Bible, created without sin in the garden, and all of a sudden they walk in unbelief, disobedience to God. Is there a path forward for them even though they have the consequences of their sin? A man like Abraham, um, whom God had called and whom God had purposed to use in covenant relationship. He and his wife come together. They have this crazy idea that Abraham's going to conceive a child with another woman. Consequences. How do you go forward when you have the consequences of past sin? The classic example is David. You think about his affair with Bathsheba, um, had a child through her, lost a child. He had to live with the consequences of what appears to be poor parenting when his son, through one wife, Amnon, uh, raped Tamar. Absalom, another son, comes along and kills Amnon. Absalom then usurps the throne for a season of time, and here's David living with the consequences of poor decision-making, and we could even say it was sin. And then he had to live with the consequence of numbering the people later on in his life. So the question is, what path should you take as we look at those figures? What path should we take when we know that we have past sin in our life, and yet God is calling us on a journey through the wilderness to the place that he has called us. And so here we are in our lives this morning with so many different stories. I've just named three biblical figures for you, but there's a few hundred biblical stories or human stories in here where the older you are, the more you look back and you say, yep, still present in my life. Am I defeated? Or is there a path forward even though the consequences can go through life? As we look at these chapters, what we're going to see that all of life really comes down to one simple word, one simple call that God leads us into, and that's the call to faith. I've committed sin. I have the consequences. And yet, do I have faith to trust God now and move forward obeying him in what he's called me to. Here's the journey forward. There's the past. Yep, can't do anything about it, even if the sin is forgiven. But yet, here is this path forward now. Will I obey God? Will I trust him? Will I have faith? Again, if you're joining us for the first time, this is the third sermon out of six as we go through the book of Numbers. Numbers is about the faithfulness of God to his people. Specifically, back in Genesis chapter 12, God gave Abraham a promise. This promise in Genesis 12, now the Lord said to Abram, 
Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. And from Genesis 12, then following to the end of that book, and then beginning in Exodus, Leviticus, and now Numbers, you have this constant drumbeat in the background that God is going to give his people this land. And it's a promise. They're going to have the land. And so he starts with Abraham, this great patriarch, and from this great patriarch comes this nation of people. Over 400 years later now, They've multiplied, if you will, into approximately two million or so. And they are on this journey. And the question is, is God going to be faithful to his promise, even though they are sinners? So we're going to see that continually throughout, that God's faithfulness is being challenged. And then also, just a a little background for you. Why six sermons in this? Um, We are following a geographical outline through the book of Numbers. So as they move to a place, we study the chapters that are taking place during that movement. As they come and and stop at a place, we're, we're studying the chapters at that particular place. And so there's six really periods where... The, the group of Israel, the nation of Israel is on the move or at a location. And that's just simply how we're breaking that down, uh, the book down with those six different uh, places, geographically speaking. So I've broken up the sermon into two parts. The first part is simply the rebellion of the people. And the second part is going to be the rebellion of the religious leaders. So let's look at the rebellion of the people. Jeff started us off with verses 1 through 3. And what I think should catch your attention right away, that drumbeat again, is verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, send men to spy out the land, there's that theme of land again, of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. So there's the promise, there's the faithfulness of God that is going to be tested. Is God going to give them the land? So as you move through chapter 13, God tells Moses to send spies up into the land and basically come back with an intelligence report. So the task of these 12 men is seen in verses 18 and 19 of chapter 3. You look at verse 18, it says, Go and see what the land is, and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds. So off go the 12 spies up into this land. And in verse 23, we hear a little bit of the land. It says that they cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes. So big that they had to carry it on a pole between the two of them, meaning that for an agrarian society, this is going to be, this is going to be the best of the best for us. God has saved the best for us. Well, at the end of verse 40, or at the end of 40 days, sorry, The spies came back and they tell the assembly of Israel, they speak about the positives. So let's look at the positives. In verse 27, what are the positives? Well, the fruit of the land is bountiful and it flows with milk and honey. So there's something very positive. Verse 28, 
Here's the intelligence report as well. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong. And the cities are fortified and very large. And besides that, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negeb. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But keep in mind verse 1. Verse 1 is, this is the land that I am giving to you. So the intelligence report comes back. Hey, positively speaking, you'll love this for the land It's going to be a very fertile land. Negatively speaking, there's some really strong people. Well, apparently, the assembly hears the report, and in verse 30, they must have had a little uproar because Caleb quiets down the crowd. And he says, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are able to overcome it. His statement is not a statement of their human strength. As you follow Caleb, Caleb is a man of God who is saying we are able to overcome it because of the promise of God. So he's a man who's characterized by belief. Well, the other 10 spies, by the way, Joshua is with Caleb on this. The other 10 spies, they respond in unbelief. Look at verses 31 and 30 through 33. They say, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. And you're saying, yep, you're right. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim. By the way, you might remember that from Genesis 6. This group of people before the flood, they're characterized by their stature, their height. And you're like, well, I thought everybody was destroyed. Yeah, they were all destroyed. Nephilim could be another name for just giant people, tall people. There we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. We looked at ourselves and we just saw ourselves as being pitifully small. And so we seemed that way to them. And so when you see this, here are these 10 spies who are looking at the challenges that are ahead of them, and they say, the way that we see ourselves is small, and the way that they see their strength is insignificant, and it's probably an accurate view of themselves. However, Joshua and Caleb are men of faith saying, this is the land that God has promised we are going to take God at his word. The question is, whom will they listen to? Caleb, Joshua, who's reminding them of the promises of God, will they move forward? Or the 10 spies who are fixated on the challenges that's ahead of them? And by the way, this just calls us to a simple lesson that when God calls you to risky obedience, whom are you listening to? Where is your focus? When God calls you to Take steps of faith that are outside of your comfort zone. Whom are you listening to and what is your focus? Is it on the bigness of God who calls you or is it on the size of the challenge? When God calls you to a task, he will see you through it. So let's keep going in chapter 14. What happens? 
Chapter 14, all the congregation raises a loud cry, verse 1, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or that we had died in this wilderness. And notice what's said next in verse 3. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. So here comes the mutiny and here comes the unbelief that's expressed specifically in God. Why is God leading us to this place where we're going to fall by the sword? They want new leaders. They're blaming God. And at that point, Moses and Aaron just fall down on their faces. And now Joshua and Caleb speak to the people. Verse 8. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. So here you have this other component that comes up. Fear. Fear is often the twin sister or the opposite of the same side of coin as unbelief. And so they've got their past there and now God is calling them to the future and now they have these two challenges of fear, don't fear, and then this unbelief. God's let us out here just to die in the wilderness. Joshua and Caleb, their conclusion is God's going to do this for us. Just proceed in faith. And it's his will that you would now take steps of obedience to what he's called you to. So verse 10. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. So here's God's glory. He sees everything that's going on. And I can only imagine that as we're surrounding the tabernacle there, God hearing the grumbling and complaining and the unbelief of his people, and then he's had enough. He wants his presence to be manifested among his people. So his glory is showing above the tabernacle or at the tabernacle. Look what happens in verse 12. God says, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. So basically, Moses, you're the new Abraham. You're the new patriarch. I'm starting over with you. And I think, all right, Moses would be all about that. After all, he's got two million people that he's tasked with leading, and what have they been characterized by as we go through the book of Numbers? Grumbling, complaining, and unbelief. But what does Moses do? Verses 13 through 19, he pleads their case. And in so many ways, as you see Moses pleading the case of the people here, he sort of sends that image forward and reminds us, this is a picture of who Christ is. Pleading the case, serving as an advocate on behalf of sinners before God. Notice how Moses prays, verse 13. He prays that God's reputation would be defended. 
Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people, for you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, It is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them, that he has killed them in the wilderness. This is the one truth about God that is dripping through these pages. This one truth is God is able. God is able to bring his people through their challenges. And Moses is saying, God, if you snuff them all out right now, your reputation, which is of utmost importance to me, your reputation is going to suffer for it. Moses is more concerned about the reputation and glory of God than he is about this boo-hoo moment that he could have. I think about that for our own lives and it challenges me to ask the question, for what are we living? For whose reputation are we living? When I think about so many of the challenges that we face, I think so many times we are so absorbed with ourselves that we bury our heads in the sand and have no motive other than ourselves. And if we were Moses and God is saying, okay, I'm going to snuff these people out, we would say, yes, do it. It would be better for me if you did. And Moses goes back and he says, God, I'm pleading with you for your reputation that you would lead these people through that your reputation would be on display, that the others would have no reason to mock you. Again, I think about that for our own lives, and I think the next time that you are tempted to cave and to have your time of self-pity, God is calling us forward with this idea of his reputation in the midst of that time of self-pity is far more important than our conveniences. His reputation for us to live in obedience to him is far more important than getting what we want. Moses, he casts, again, a shadow forward to Jesus. It's in John 17, 4, where Jesus says, I glorified you on earth. I was about your reputation on earth. Having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, this was the task that you sent me. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Jesus lives his life so that the reputation of God is revealed and manifested. Now, as we follow Jesus, one of the most important truths that we can have in front of us is that our lives are meant to be lived out for something far greater than us, and that is the reputation of God. 
When you face the grumbling and complaints of people, what are you living life for? Here's Moses, for the reputation of God. When you see what's happened in the past, and when you see all the consequences, all the challenges, all of the failures, and you're like, what's the point of going forward? The point of going forward is there's something far greater than you. It's the reputation of God. Moses also appeals to the covenant nature of God, the covenant-keeping nature of God, verse 17. Now, please, let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, as you have promised, saying... The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. So please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Just a little kind of thing to tuck in your back pocket. Whenever you see that term or phrase, steadfast love in the Old Testament. Oftentimes it's the language that calls us back to what God has committed himself to in the covenant. He's one who's steadfast. He's not going to give up. He's not going to throw in the towel. When he makes a commitment and a covenant, he is a steadfast covenant keeper. He's committed to keeping his covenant. And so Moses is appealing to him as a covenant keeper. God, please continue to keep your covenant here. Now because of Moses' prayer, God relents, yet sin still has its consequences. What are the consequences? Look at verses 26 and following. The Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron saying, how long shall this wicked generation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness and all of your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me. Now you remember the census from the first week, chapter one, 603,000 people, soldiers 20 and older. Now those people 20 and older who have grumbled against me, verse 30, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones who you said would become prey, I will bring them in and they shall know the land that you have rejected. Okay, so here's God. He's brought this group of people up out of Egypt. He's redeemed them. He's saved them. He's brought them through the wilderness and they are on the cusp of going into the land. They're complaining and grumbling saying, we can't do it. And God says, okay, because of all of your unbelief, those who are 20 and older, you are going to wander out in this wilderness for 40 years now and you're going to die. The generation 20 and under now is going to be the generation that enters into the promised land that I will give to them. The older generation is hearing the consequences for their sin. So look down at verses 39 and 40. It says that they mourned greatly. And they decide in verse 40, here we are. We will go up to the place that the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. And that sounds right and good, but what's wrong with it? What's wrong with it is God has just given them the consequences of their sins, told them, you're not going into the land. And it's like they all of a sudden realize, man, I just gave up something that was going to be incredible. Now, it's my right to have it back. 
So they go after the one thing that's been taken away, thinking that they can get it in their own strength. Verse 41, Moses says, why are you now transgressing the command of the Lord when that will not succeed? Do not go up, for the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. For there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword, because you have turned back from following the Lord. The Lord will not be with you. But they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the ark of the covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. And then verse 45. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hormah. Just a messed up group of people. Um, they've sinned. They have consequences. They're saying, I want the land. Because we can't go into the land, we're saying, mm, I don't think God's consequences are true for us, so we're going to go up and take it. And Moses is saying, God's not going with you. And then the enemies come down and defeat them. What would have been the best thing for them in that moment? The best thing for them would have been, hey, accept the consequences of your sin, repent right here in the wilderness, and trust God. All right, so that's happening in chapters 13 and 14. You see the rebellion of the people, and they are living in this state of unbelief, clearly lacking faith. Chapter 15, all of a sudden, just starts into laws, sacrifices. And if you're reading the narratives, you're reading the narratives up to this point where it comes to this dead end, and the laws start, and you're asking, whoa, what is going on here? Why is Moses moving from stories? Because there's other stories that we're going to get to. Why is Moses moving from stories here now to law in chapter 15? Well, there is a deliberate message that is being sent in the arrangement of the material of the book. So here you go from sin and failure to law. And here's what one commentator had to say. He says this, each of the offering sections functions within the sequential outline to focus the reader and hearer on the proper relationship between God and humanity in the context of the preceding material of the given cycle. As you move into chapter 15, it's about sacrifices and offerings. What should characterize these people in the preceding chapters is them coming before the Lord saying, we have sinned. We have transgressed your law. We should be coming to you with repentant hearts and offering these sacrifices to you. Well, here's what they should do move into chapter 15 and you've got this very interesting event that happens next in verses 32 down to 36. And it's not an isolated event. It weaves through this whole story, verses 32 to 36. While the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him in custody because it had not been made clear what should be done to him. 
And the Lord said to Moses, the man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with the stones as the Lord commanded Moses. All right. You look at this and you're like, okay, God's got a short fuse. Stoning somebody for just picking up twigs on the Sabbath day. Step back and see the arrangement of the material that's happening in Numbers. Numbers 13 and 14, characterized by people who are waving their hand up at God saying, I'm going to do whatever I want. Chapter 15, here's law. Here's how you should proceed. Offer sacrifices. Live in repentance. Confess your sin. You get to this little vignette here in the middle of chapter 15, and you're wondering, are the people having a repentant heart? The Sabbath. Of all days, people knew that on the Sabbath, you did not work. You rested in your tent, and by resting in your tent, you worship God. So this guy that's coming out to pick up sticks is not some sort of accidental person who forgot or was misinformed about the law. He's walking outside of his tent, basically with his chest out, looking up at God saying, I'm going to do what I want to do. It's high-handed sin towards God. And God says, okay, Here's what you deserve. All you grumbling and complaining people, if you're going to walk in disobedience and rebellion like this, here's a little caricature of your sin. Here's somebody who's puffed up his chest and saying, it's all about me. It's not about your reputation. It's not about keeping covenant. I'm going to go out and violate the Sabbath in your face, God. And God says, no, in yours. Here's judgment. And he's stoned to death. So then chapter 15 closes out with more commands. Chapter 15 says, man, we've got to start with some reminders. So verse 39, it shall be a tassel for you. They're supposed to make these tassels and put them on the edges of their garments. What are these tassels supposed to be about? It shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord and to do them and not, look at this, and think about the Sabbath breaker and then the people in the wilderness not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. So here's the point as you come up through this section on the rebellion of the people. God's people, no matter what has happened up to this point, should be characterized going forward by faithful surrender to God. God's people, no matter what has happened in the past, going forward should be characterized by faithful surrender to God. And this is where this starts to smack with where we started. What are you supposed to do when you have the consequences of past sin in your life and you're looking at going forward and you're like, should I just give up, stick out my chest and say, I'm done with this whole thing? No! Some of you come into this room, many of us come into this room with events of the past 
and you know that that event was a transgression against God, and that event has consequences for it. And those consequences are challenging. Sometimes it's parenting. I, I made a bad move with my kids in that moment. Could be something in high school. I made a bad move with a decision with that person in high school. Could be marriage. I made a bad decision. It was a sinful decision. And now I have to live with the consequences. And so many times what we want to be like is, well, let's just treat them like they're a block of wood. You know, I'll go back, apologize, ask for their forgiveness. Let's just move on. And people are not inanimate objects. Sin has its consequences, and so now you have to live with those consequences. And the question is, well, should I just throw in the towel of perseverance and be done? No, you don't. Here's what Moses is saying. Here's what God is saying. Here, put the word of God on your garments. Be reminded that you are not following the emotions of your heart or what your eyes are, are looking at. Remember who God is. He is your Lord. And now you start following in obedience to the Lord. So if I can say it this way, God knows everything that has happened in your past. God knows all of the harsh words. God knows all the sinful things that you've done. And in one sense, if I can say this, I think you understand how I'm saying it. God doesn't care. Move forward in faith. Trust him in obedience now. Today is a new day. Start in obedience, believing that what God has said in his commandments that you will listen to. And that's what he's saying. He is the Lord. He is your Lord today. Follow him in faithful obedience. And when this happens, there's a death that occurs in each one of us. There's a surrender. Okay, I'm going to die to what I, I feel in my heart sometimes. I'm going to die to what my eyes want. That way of life is not going to be the authority in my life going forward. Jesus is. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he has got this great way of saying it. Here we are as Christians. He says, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering, which every man must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. And thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. This is what these people needed, communion with him. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like the one of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him. Or it may be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ. The death of the old man at his call. And what Satan loves to do right in these moments when you're, if you will, looking at the past and seeing the future, what Satan loves to do is saying, oh, no, 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 don't die. Live. Just soak yourself up in self-pity. Soak yourself up in where you've been. Pursue yourself. And Christ is saying, no, come and die to what's happened. 
Die to me. Follow me. So your will is no longer what's leading you. I am the Lord your God. The Lord is leading you forward. So many people have struggles and pains because of the consequences of their sin in the past. And it's true. It's there. What's the path forward? Trust Christ. Go forward. Today, trust Christ and go forward. Okay, I see the time. You're doing well. Let me summarize point two in just a few minutes. Numbers 16, it's the religious leaders rebel. The religious leaders rebel. Okay, what happens in chapter 16? A man named Korah, he's part of the Levite tribe. You might remember that slide from last week, how the 12 tribes were scattered all around the tabernacle. On the inside, there was the tribe of Levi. The Levites were made up of three little clans, Korah, Kohathites, Merarites, and Gerarites. He's a member of the Kohathites. So he's a religious leader. He gathers 250 men, comes up to Moses and Aaron and says, we're done with your leadership. We don't want anything to do with you. We should lead. God hasn't just spoken through you. Moses, he's about had it. He says, all right, get your 250 men together. Um, he gathers them all together in front of the assembly, or in front of the congregation. And he has this word to Korah and his clan, his group, if you will. He says, if, if I'm wrong, nothing's going to happen to you at all. And we'll go on with life. But if I'm right that you're in sin and you should be following after God, then the ground's going to open up and swallow you. <laughs> all right, so let's go out to the soccer field. There we all are up on the berm. And there's 250 people right in the middle of the soccer field, and they're causing problems. Look at verse 31. As soon as Moses had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with all their households, their goods, and all the people who belonged to Korah. So they, verse 33, and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. I mean, can you imagine that? If we're all out on the berm right there and the soccer field all of a sudden has a mouth to it, opens it up, people fall in, closes back up, they're gone. What a statement from God. But look at verse 41. But on the next day, the congregation of the people of Israel did what? They grumbled against Moses and against Aaron, saying, You have killed the people of the Lord. You just think, wow, they are living in unbelief. God sends a plague. Aaron goes out and intercedes on behalf of the people and stands between the people who have died from the plague and those who are living. He basically stands in the gap and pleads for the people. And again, you look at these stories and you think, okay, that's Christ who stands between those deserving of death and those who are going to be shielded from God's wrath. So what do we walk away with? What do we walk away with in this section of Numbers we know that we are grumblers and complainers. We know that we have sins in our lives. 
And the consequences remind us of it regularly that we have sin in our lives. We need atonement. We need someone who will advocate for us because we should all die eternally. And we have a better advocate. Each one of us as Christians has an advocate who is pleading on our behalf for eternal life. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And, and listen to that language, you little children, it's okay. But if anyone does sin, know this, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the one who pleads on our behalf. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. All of our complaining, all of our grumbling, all of our unbelief, and those consequences which remind us of all of those sins. Those consequences, they remind us of all of those sins. All of those sins placed on Jesus. He's the propitiation for us. And so we come through this section and we say, Lord, I am one of the grumblers. I am one of the complainers. But thank you for your son Jesus who is my advocate. Second, we press forward in faith. No matter where we are in the consequences of our sin. We press forward in faith no matter where we are in the consequences of our sin. Let me just read a verse to you from Hebrews chapter 3. You can turn there if you like. We'll close there. Hebrews chapter 3. The writer of Hebrews picks up on this theme of the folks wandering in the wilderness. In verse 7 he says, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. And as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Here's where we are. God has given us a path forward. On one hand, we have an advocate. As Christians, I don't have to fear the consequences of my sin. And yet I can look back at everything that's taken place in my own life and I can see that I'm in the wilderness. I'm not home yet. And I can see all the consequences of my sin. And here's what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, be careful. Be careful because you're tempted to look to the past or you're tempted to look at the challenges and you're tempted to live in unbelief. No, 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 no. Live in belief in what God has said. Live in belief in what God has spoken. So today is another day. Here's what God's word has said. Obey me, obey me, obey me. And so as people, we're characterized by endurance. We're pressing forward. We're not going to be characterized by unbelief because God is at work with his spirit in our lives. We're saying, okay, I surrender. I surrender. I'll live with the consequences of my sin. I know that that's in the past, but today is a new day. I'm pressing forward through the wilderness. I'm going to live by faith again today 
and obey God. The path forward for all of us who have the consequences of sin in our past is that today, okay, God, here's another day. I'm going to live by faith. I'm going to believe you. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to obey you. Let's pray.